pass the bill so that you can uh, find out what is in it. What? If you like your doctor, you will be able to keep your doctor. What difference at this point does it make? out of what's going on in the world today. Oh, sorry about that. That's my fault. Welcome to Southern I'm sorry. Talk Radio. <laughs> my fault. Your host, Annie, the Radio Chicky Bellis, and featuring Curtis C.S. Bennett and the most interesting guests that you'll find anywhere on Internet radio. And you can join the show and let your voice be heard by dialing 917 889 Three six seven five. So sit back, relax, and remember, Southern sense is common sense. Another adventure here on Southern Sense, live on Blog Talk Radio at HR Media, iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, Facebook, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, and also now up on um, on Podium. On Podium is a new one that we're up on now also. Just check out our website. It's back up and running. Yay! At southernsense.net. That's southernsense as in commonsense.net. And even if you have the old website, southernsense with a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com, you can still go to the same wonderful destination and see our smiling faces as we interview the best of the best. I'm your hostess with the hostess, the least. <laughs> I can't even say my own name. <laughs> the radio chickadee, Annie, along with my co-host Curtis, shaking his head, Bennett. <laughs> Good afternoon, Curtis. Oh man, Curtis, unmute yourself. Okay, we're waiting for you Curtis to unmute. Now we got you now, baby. <laughs> I'm not the only one messing up today. <laughs> Oh man, we got ourselves a great lineup. We're up on um, up on our web page. The video is going up live there right now. I'm checking on Facebook. We should be up and running there, and also should be up and running on YouTube. I'm checking out the connections now as I speak. And yes, we are. We're up on Facebook. You can join us there. And it doesn't look like we're up on YouTube. YouTube is having a problem with the connection, and I double-checked everything to make sure it was going through. So we'll just have to um, – no, 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 it is up there. It is. I lie. I make a lie out of myself. It is up also on YouTube. All right, so we're rocking and rolling today, Curtis, and we got ourselves a great, great lineup. 
uh, who's coming back after at least a month and a half absence, our friend from the Epic Times, Mark Tapscott. He'll be joining us at the start of the show. And then we're going to have a new person, Morgan Lorette. He's the author of a book, and it is, I mean, this is going to be a blockbuster, Guns, Girls, and Greed. I was a Blackwater mercenary in Iraq, and I read it cover to cover. It is scheduled to come out next month, I believe February 6th. I'm telling you folks, you better start lining up because what he's got in his book is powerful, really, really powerful. So we got ourselves a lot to talk about and a lot to do, a lot that's going on, um, and we will get to that after we do our dedication to a fallen hero. How does that sound, Curtis? Okay, we lost Curtis again. Oh, it's going to be one of those days, so I will go forward. Those that listen to us know that we start off each and every show with a dedication to a fallen hero. And today's dedication is going to go out to Police Officer Anthony Francone of the Pyramid Lake Paiute Tribal Police Department. His end of watch was Friday, August 25th of 2023. And this is from the Officer Dan Memorial page that you can find at odmp.org. Police Officer Anthony Francone was struck and killed by a vehicle that was being pursued south of Nixon, Nevada. The pursuit went to the area of Route 446 and Route 447, where he was struck while deploying spike strips. The subject was shot and killed after he struck Officer Francone. Officer Francone had served in law enforcement for 25 years. He had previously served with the Eureka County Sheriff's Office and Story County Sheriff's Office, where he retired. After retirement, he served with the Fallon Paiute Tribal Police Department, the Washoe Tribal Police Department, and the Pyramid Lake Paiute Tribal Police Department. Officer Franconi is survived by his two sons, daughter, father, stepmother, and sister. And this is by Jariah White at KTNV. And Jariah writes, Members from the North Las Vegas Police Department traveled to northern Nevada to pay their respects to a fallen police officer who was laid to rest. Franconi worked in law enforcement for over 25 years, including serving with the Eureka County Sheriff's Office, Stewart County Sheriff's Office, Fallon Paiute Travel Police Department, the Washu Travel Tribal Police Department, and the Pyramid Lakes Paiute Travel Police Department. Flags were also lowered to half staff across the state to honor Francone. Quote, by far, this is the hardest thing I've ever done. Never thought I'd give the eulogy at my best friend's funeral, said Judge Kenneth Quirk, who was also Franconi's watch commander for 10 years with the Story County Sheriff's Office. He continues, Anthony was a very proud, and if you got to know him like I did, you know that he had a sense of humor and loved to laugh. I will miss Anthony. I know that he will be missed by a lot, by many, by his family, and I'll see Anthony on his final roll call. North Las Vegas Police said their thoughts and prayers are with the Pyramid Lake Police Department, and that Officer Franconi may be gone, but he will never be forgotten. 
by Jaden Urban at QNews.com. And Jaden writes, Officer Anthony Franconi was killed in the line of duty on Friday night, August 25th. A memorial was made off of Route 446 by a tribal member. When speaking with the Pyramid Lake Paiute tribe, they said they wanted to put this memorial there to make sure his legacy lives on forever. You know he had a nice smile, and he was very polite, very respectful, said James Phoenix, tribal chairman for the Pyramid Lake Paiute tribe. He's a community-oriented officer that went out and was always trying to problem-solve and be integrated into the community, and that's what made him special. Officer Franconi served with the Pyramid Lake Paiute Tribal Police for just over two years and was a police officer for 26 years. For longtime friend and co-worker, Detective Melissa Reed, she said his personality was like, unlike any other. We would go on a stop, and it was always good cop, bad cop. And for some reason, I always got stuck being bad cop, Reed said. He's just the one that's always the compassionate, caring. He listens. He takes the time and considers the person and not just the situation. Officer Franconi and Melissa Reed were longtime buddies. Their first meeting began with a rocky start. When we first met, we couldn't stand each other, Reed said. We absolutely couldn't stand each other. One day he told a joke. I laughed. He told a joke. I laughed, and then we realized, hey, you're funny. I'm funny. We're both funny. When asking Reed about her favorite story about Franconi, she had too many to name. Gosh, I've got so many. Some of them probably are totally inappropriate, so I'll keep them, she said. Reed is the point of contact for Franconi's family. She's been helping the family through this difficult time and helping to prepare services for him which were planned on September night and held at Aces Stadium. Franconi leaves behind three children, his sons Jonathan and Tyler, and his daughter Katie, who was born with a rare form of muscular dystrophy. He was her best friend and biggest cheerleader and would spend all of his free time over there taking care of her, Reed said. Franconi is survived by his father Mike, his stepmother Debbie, and his best friend and sister, Ashley. He is my best friend, and I don't know what I'm going to get from day to day without him, Ashley Franconi said. Other than his family, there was something else that he had, Franconi's heart. He loved his family, Reed said. Outside of that, he loved his cardinals. He loved work, too. But I think he would give everything up for the cardinals and his family, for sure. While the family is still trying to process Franconi's loss, it is also being felt by the Tribal Police Department. He was an administration we were allowing administrative leave. I'm sorry. We, as an administrative, are allowing administrative leave as much as they need to grieve during this process. But also they're standing tall because we're working through Burning Man as well, Phoenix said. With the passing, Reed wishes she could say one last thing to him. We always said, love you, brother. Love you, sister, she said. It's what we all say to each other when you hang up. 
You never know. I just wish I could say, I love you. The Pyramid Lake Paiute Tribe is proposing to have State Route 446 renamed to honor Officer Franconi Highway. Today's show is dedicated to Officer Franconi. It's also dedicated to all the brave men and women out there who serve, be they law enforcement, firefighters, or emergency services. We would also dedicate this show to all the brave men and women that serve in the military from the birth of this nation through today and into our hopeful future. And we dedicate to them this song, and I'm trying to find it for some reason. Things got a little mixed up over here, and I'm not seeing to find it. So I'll actually have to find something else. All right, we will dedicate this song, Amazing Grace, to Officer Franconi, to all first responders, and to our military, past, present, and future. May God bless each and every one. Sense Live on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, Lone Star Daily News, iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, YouTube, Amazon Music, iHeartRadio, up now on iPodium, uh, and half a dozen other places. Just go to the name of the show, SouthernSense.net, and yes, our website is back up and running. And if you have bookmarked the old website, Southern Sense with a dash in the middle, SouthernSense.com, 
That also will lead you to the new website. My co-host has been having a little technical difficulty on his end, and hopefully he's got himself okay. Curtis, just make sure you're unmuted on your side. I can, can you hear me, and can you speak? Uh-oh. Curtis may need to sign out and sign back in because we did have a clear mic just prior to going on air, and I am showing his mic unmuted, so there should be no problem with him here being able to speak. And definitely his mic is unmuted on our side, Curtis. Well, we'll try to see if we can get Curtis back in here. And Curtis has dropped off, and he'll probably be trying to call back in. Meanwhile, we have ourselves a lot to talk about on the show, uh, a lot of things going on. Um, one thing uh, I'm very happy about, um, uh, uh, the Republican National Committee was offering to declare Trump the de facto winner in the, um, in the primary. We've only had three primaries right now, Ivan. No, I'm sorry, two, Iowa and New Hampshire. They're going to be uh, here in South Carolina. And, Curtis, yes, we do have a sound for you. Hooray, hooray, hooray. Yeah, they um, they wanted him to be the presumptive, huh? The presumptive nominee, the de facto nominee. Yeah. And he did the smart thing. He did the smart thing because someone asked me this on Wednesday. I do the talk show uh, with Vicki Tonkin's Moms Across America through Dan Perkins Media. And this was the question, should Nikki Haley drop out? And I say, no, let the people speak. He's only got a handful, a couple of them in under his belt. If you take that chance to vote, of course, the rest of the nation, you will forever split the Republican Party. Let the process go through. And that's exactly what he said. No, he wants to run to the finish line. Let him run all the way to the finish line. And um, that's what's going to happen. So I'm glad. And if Nikki Haley sticks it out, good for her. It'll give something for the, the people, the pundits, to talk about. And the more she bitmouths them, the worse it's going to look for her. But, you know, he's going to lay off a little bit here, too. So uh, that's, that's, that's all i got to say on that one, unless you've got a different opinion, Curtis. Well, actually, from what I know, Trump didn't – he did not initiate this, and he told them um, the um, – the RNC not to you know go ahead with that. Let let um, mm-hmm. the people decide. So exactly. I mean, it's evident that she really doesn't have a pathway to beat this guy. But you know, it's going to be the people in the end who really decide. Like you said, we got um, Nevada coming up, and after that, mm-hmm. South Carolina, and then Super Tuesday. I, I really don't think she's going to get past. Uh, South Carolina, though. Well, she won't care. As far as I know, from what I've been getting, because we had our county GOP meeting uh, just recently, just this past week, and uh, we had someone come up to speak for Nikki Haley, a friend of mine, someone I admire very much, but she's in the Haley camp. I'm not going to fault her for that. That's her choice, and good. And she's going to campaign for her. Yeah, good for her. She's committed to a candidate, and that's good. That's good for us. And then someone came up for uh, President Trump. The room over, overwhelmingly was in support of Trump. And she did get a couple of people, you know, clapping for her side. I, I, I clapped for her. You know, it, it, it takes courage and guts to go out and, 
and support a, an unpopular candidate. But, you know, she had the courage and guts to stand up for her convictions, and I admire her greatly for that. So if Nikki Haley does make it through to the end, I doubt she'd be the, uh, the nominee. But, hey, that does say something for her courage. You know, she's got some good things going for her, but there's also things that we disagree with her on it. She invited the Chinese to come here into South Carolina and build their facilities very close to military bases here. She raised the gas tax on us when we took busloads of people up there to protest the gas tax. There's a couple of things that she did that we didn't appreciate. But there's also a lot of other things that she stood up for that we do appreciate. I mean, she took a lot of heat when she said that you have kids that are going on the Internet. There should be something that proves that it's age-related. And here, this is something that we're trying to put through here in South Carolina legislation. I just got off a Zoom meeting with the South Carolina Freedom Caucus, and this is one of the things we're, we're proponents of, that if you have kids getting on the Internet and you've got an age-inappropriate website, you should have to jump through hoops and the kids should have to prove that they are over the age of 18 and eligible to access that. Otherwise, access to those porn sites, to those grooming sites, should be restricted. I mean, you don't allow the kids to go out into the movie theater to watch porn. You don't allow them to go out and buy cigarettes or, or liquor under the age of 21 or 18 for cigarettes. So why would you allow them to access pornography when there are laws on the books restricting their access to it on the street? You can't perform in front of a child, a, a, a pornographic. But yet, these LBGT, XYZ, LMNOQ, whatever they are, uh, story things are doing exactly that. And no one is, is, is being charged with pornography for a child. So this well, is what gets me. It's, it's, it's two-faced. I, I believe they do it because they want um, to create a nation of um, immorals. It justifies what they, you know, what they believe in and what they do. I mean, if <laughs> there's no better way than to um, feel free in what you do than to get others to to be in agreement with you. So I well, think if, they they start you, with the children and they groom them to um, find this kind of stuff acceptable. And exactly. um, as They're they grow them. older, as they grow older, they won't have a problem with their children watching this stuff because that's how they were raised. So you end well, up with a world of immorality. Well, this is exactly right. You are precisely right. They groom them as a child. If you take away moral values, if you take away adult responsibility, if you take away God, then you have a child that has no guidance and they're going to look for the nearest person that's going to say, well, you know, here, listen to me. I'm telling you what is right. And if that is a teacher in the classroom teaching critical race theory or DEI or the LBGTQ, transgender, whatever, the child's going to say, well, I I don't know anything. You're the adult. You're supposed to be teaching me, so I'm going to listen to you and assume that what you're telling me is right. Well, heaven forbid that child now grows into a young adult or even into a teenager. Then they're showing, studies are showing that the sooner you teach child pornography, the more they are prone to physical and sexual abuse, the more they are prone 
to dropping out of high school, the more they are prone to violence. And, and this is not how you have now someone that was growing into a teenager and a young adult that is completely bereft. And now all of a sudden finding it that as an adult they're lied to, what do you think the ramifications are going to be? You're going to see more school shootings. You're going to see shootings more violent. You can see more uh, uh, reports of children being raped. I, I, this is not, these are the studies that have been done that show that you introduce them at a young age to pornography and the violence and the abuse just follows. And it's a sad, sad commentary. But we're allowing this to happen in our society. And here in South Carolina, we're trying to stop, stop it. I know Texas and Florida are, try, are doing the same thing. And we need these red states to step up and say, no, we've got to put our foot down. Well, to add to that, um, there's a lawlessness component to this because um, if you you look at the last, I would say, 50 years, maybe I say go back as far as 40, there has been um, a movement to um, subvert the law here in America. And, I mean, you see it with the elites all the time. That's why, you know, just hardly anyone that doesn't believe we have a two-tier justice system today, one for the rich and the, the elites, and one for the average, um, you know, blue-collar worker. And I think they, well, they would like to groom people into growing into a world where laws don't matter. Anything goes. Yeah. Well, that, that what they want is anarchy, but anarchy could never exist. Into the vacuum of anarchy will step in tyranny. Because if you look at the history of all the communist nations that came around, the first thing is they groom the elite, and the elite go out and teach everyone else that this is the right way to go. Then once the tyrants get into control of power, they go to those elite and say, oh, we don't politically believe in you anymore. They get canceled or they get thrown in jail, or whatever, canceled. Now all of a sudden the elites sit in the back seat, and they're all upset because, hey, wait a minute, we were your best buddies. And yet, what happens to the masses? They are completely cowed because now they saw what happened to the elite, and they don't want that to happen to them. So you have a communist China. But if the masses have the courage and strength to stand up, they can throw off that yoke. They did in Poland. They did in Latvia, Estonia, Lithuania. They have done it in country after country. And let's just hope that we get more countries. I mean, China, I don't know. I hear rumors rumbling that people are getting upset with what's going on over there and whether or not there is going to be a massive Chinese uprising to throw the current tyranny out. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. We'll see. Well, we're waiting for yeah. our friend Mark Tapscott to call in, so uh, hopefully he'll call in in a few moments, and we'll go on with things that he's been working on, um, and there is a heck of a lot that he's been talking about. Um, one of the things, what the tyrants do, and this is what <laughs> just came up recently, if you had heard about um, the Treasury Department going out to financial institutions telling them to search for these keywords and these key um, uh, financial codes 
So if anyone has anything to do with religion, like buying a Bible or having to bid uh, mega merchandise or Trump merchandise or a firearm, they are to be flagged. And the federal government should be notified about those transactions and that person, their identity revealed to the government. That is scary. That is tyranny. Well, you know, and and they play favors um, as well. If you look at the January 6th um, fiasco and how they went about persecuting those on the right. um, And basically, I mean, how is that an insurrection and, Nobody came there with guns and stuff <laughs> to take over. But then you look at uh, what happened during that summer in Portland and um, Oregon. And, I mean, we went for months where the left-wing um, radicals just tore up the city and held it hostage. And some people did die. And you don't hear anything mm-hmm. about that. They didn't go after them. Matter of fact, you had the well, vice president giving them um, bail, helping them bail out. Well, I don't we know have the perfect people remember that. that. Well, Curtis, we got the perfect person to ask that. Welcome back after a big long absence. We miss you very much, Mark Tapscott from the Epoch Times. Good afternoon, Mark. How are you? Hey, Mark. Hey, hey guys. How you doing? All right. Yes. Been a while. We thought you didn't. Yeah, it's been. No, I, I still love you. <laughs> <laughs> what's, what's, what's the big question? Why well, is it you that the left-wing radicals get a pass? They get a pass because all of their buddies in the mainstream media control things, and they don't want to report anything that might make their buddies look bad. <laughs> That's it's an understatement. understatement. Well, I started off the conversation because um, I don't know if you know Dan Perkins. I do a podcast with uh, Vicki Tompkins on his website called Moms Across America, one of the things we talked about, which you wrote about, I'm glad to see, is the Senate uh, a Banking Committee uh, report uh, about the Treasury Department looking for key words in our transactions. Anything to do with religion, God, guns, and Trump makes us a designated a domestic terrorist. Oh, my goodness. We're, I, I'm a terrorist? Yep. Well, if you uh, ask the Department of Justice and the Department of the Treasury, you might be. Um, I hate to laugh about it because it really is a sad situation when when our federal government uh, does this kind of thing, which which basically is what they did is is they went to the bank, the banks, Bank of America, and all the rest of them. They went to the credit card companies and they went to other financial institutions and they said. What we would like for you to do, quote unquote, like for you to do, is do searches of your customers' private accounts. And if you see any transactions that mention, for example, quote, religious text, unquote, uh, or quote, MAGA, unquote, or quote, Trump, unquote, then we would like to, uh, to see that data. And the banks and the credit card companies and the financial institutions did it for them. We don't know how much data it produced. We don't know how many individuals were associated as a result of those searches. But one has to assume um, 
there may well have been quite a few of those folks who, when they uh, purchased a Bible, for example, it went into the financial records as a religious text. So, you know, that's, that is a tremendously repressive act on the part of the government, uh, repressive of our First Amendment rights to express and practice the religion of our choice or no religion of our choice. You know, it, it's funny because uh, a couple of months back, I went into a local pawn shop, and he also resells, you know, used guns and he sells ammunition. So in the name of the title, it's such and such and guns. And um, I had purchased a couple of items, and the next thing you know, by the time I got home, my credit card was locked. And I called them up, and I said, listen, I just did a transaction. Oh, we did this for your own security because, you know, it was an unusual transaction. And I said, did yeah. you lock it because the, the gun was in the title? And I got them to unlock it. But I, I thought about that, and I'm thinking that there's several other times I've done something, and there was been like a, a temporary freeze on my account until I verified that, yes, I made a purchase. And I had purchased a prayer book for my church. And I was like, uh-huh. a prayer book, and now a gun. So I'm wondering if my name is one of those out there. Do I wear the red, red as in the color of conservative, badge of color? <laughs> well, Annie, I, frankly, it would not surprise me a bit to find out that you are indeed. Uh, your name came up in um, one of those searches. Um, you know, it, 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 it's... Just think about this. What What is coming down next? The Biden administration is preparing to push uh, for the adoption of um, the central bank digital currency, CBDC. And what that is intended to do is two things. Number one, um, get rid of all cash, you know, the stuff that we can hold in our hand, and in its place, we would only have electronic accounts. And guess who would have full-time access to our financial accounts? Bureaucrats oh, in Washington. Oh, the Federal, yeah, the federal Reserve right. Bank. Oh, yes. Yep. And, yep. And, well, it wouldn't I, just be the Federal Reserve Bank. It would be very likely the FBI, the Department of Justice, and probably anybody else in the federal government that uh, – you know, could come up with some kind of lame excuse to have access to it. And with the flip of a switch or the punch of a key, they can cut off all your financial access. And that's a that's scary right. thought. A very yeah. scary or, thought. Or now I was I go ahead. Or, or they or they they can they can uh set the conditions on your account that you are not permitted to make purchases of certain items. And you can just imagine what that might mean. Yeah. You've got a, a gasoline so, car, you can't buy gasoline. Uh, you've got a handgun, right. you can't buy ammunition. Um, you'll right. be restricted to what foods are out, much less alcohols or medications you could purchase. You'll be limited where you could live based upon how much you're now able to afford in rent, much less being able to own property because you won't be able to get those loans, much less the credit card accounts that you would want to have if you don't have enough money in there and you want to use a credit card. These will all be then suddenly restricted. But, oh, gee, don't they do that in communist China? 
Well, that's that's a big part of what's going on here is, uh, you know, there are a lot of folks in uh, the American financial community and in uh, the academic world and in the government who uh, have a great deal of admiration for the uh, Chinese Communist Party's social credit system. Uh, social credit system is kind of a vague, innocuous-sounding term for totalitarian control of your entire life is what it amounts to because uh, through the social credit system, if you say something that your neighbor, for example, uh, interprets to be um, contrary to the officially accepted opinion of the Chinese Communist Party, they can go in and they can penalize you by measures such as you just described, preventing you from being able to buy something or preventing you from being able to use the subway system to get to work or to prevent you from buying um, clothes um, for a certain period of time. Um, or a job. And it's also, or a job, uh, and if you don't buy the approved vehicle, then you don't, you don't, uh, you don't get around. So it gives the government tremendous leverage to enforce the um, officially approved view uh, of those who are in government and those who have power. And all the rest of us are subject to whatever they say is what's going to happen. Absolutely. Now you throw in artificial intelligence into that, like the Chinese have already done. So when you walk past the billboard, it registers your emotion and what you're doing. Um, That's it right. also monitors you through your smart device on your wrist. And they're going to That's know right. whether or not whatever you just saw made you feel good or bad, whether you approved or disapproved. So they are able to monitor yep. your every moment, who you communicate with, and whether or not you say the appropriate things when you do that communication. This exists in communist yep. China, and they want to bring it here. Oh, wait a minute, but they are already doing that by censoring what we can or cannot say on social networks, much less who is well, going to be able to run for office because the intimidation that's going on for people that want to run for office because they don't toe the line. I'm sorry, I'm going to uh, rant, Mark. That's okay. <laughs> and you, you probably saw um, there was a little bit of coverage in some parts of the media from the uh, World Economic Forum in Davos. Uh, a presentation was made by an individual whose name I don't recall, um, but making the point that at a certain level of development with artificial intelligence, you don't actually have to have elections because artificial intelligence will know, given the candidates and the issues, how we would vote. So why go through the motion of an election? They'll just tell us, well, this is what you would have voted, and this is who you get now for your um, your next president. That's that's where this is going. A matter of fact, your friend Andrew Thornbrook has a great article dealing with exactly that and how the CCP interfered with our last election in the Epoch yeah. Times, which came up yesterday. Yep. See, I'm on, I'm on, the, I'm yep. on the ball. <laughs> yes, you are. You're always on the ball. <laughs> But what I found ironic throughout this whole thing is Bank of America was the largest financial institute cowing to the federal government. 
But yet, wasn't Bank of America just, oh, about a decade ago, uh, complacent in allowing illegal aliens to obtain credit cards on the, on the request of the federal government? I mean, I couldn't get a credit card, but an illegal alien could get one through Bank of America. Well, you know, there's a lot of people in America who are citizens of this country and, you know, work hard and take care of their families and, and uh, follow the law who can't get some of the aid, a good part of the aid that uh, the government is handing out free to many of these several million uh, illegal immigrants that uh, came across the border just in the last year. Um mm-hmm. You know, a lot of folks that look at that and they say, wait a minute, that's, that's, that's just not right, you know. That's, that's, what, mm-hmm. that's, that's a very simple illustration of why I think so many people respond to the idea of Make America Great Again, MAGA, um, because it simply says, you know, let's take care of our own people first. Mm-hmm. Now, it's funny because you have an article, again, written just this past week on the 22nd, dealing with exactly the aid programs to illegal immigrants with the border crisis. And just uh, last night and today in the news, Boston Airport, Logan Airport, overrun with illegal aliens because they have this thing that you must shelter them, even though they're illegal. So you can't walk yeah. through the airport to get to your flight without having to cross the paths, going, weaving through all these people sleeping all over the floor. And yet, you have to go through the TSA and give them everything, including the change in your pocket and the shoes off your feet, in order to get through security, but yet you have illegal aliens right at the entrance to these gates, and who's to say some of them don't slip through? Yeah. You know, it's, it really is unfortunate because we have um, – tremendous problem with homeless veterans and Uh I would think and I suspect most common sense Americans would agree you know it is a more important priority for us as people to take care of the men and women who put on the uniform of the United States military and in many cases you know didn't come back with a leg or an arm uh, or came back with them with other kinds of, of profoundly serious injuries, uh, and yet, for whatever reason, in um, the current time, there's thousands of them that are homeless. Why aren't Why aren't we taking those resources to help those people first? Um, you know, common sense says they sacrificed for us. Why don't we help them first? Exactly. Exactly. And in your article, you talk about just this year, 85,000 unaccompanied minors, just they lost track of. All right. You talk about how it's gone up between last year and this year, more than $2 billion in additional money. And our friend, Andrew Androgisky, I always mispronounce his name, from OpenTheBooks.org, I pulled up his article, too, talks about the the money and where it's going. to provide lengthy list of services, including emergency housing assistance, work authorization, public assistance yep. benefits, medical screening, school enrollment, yep. employment, and mental health yeah, referrals, this, including legal assistance. This is crazy. Yeah. 
Yeah, it really is. Adam Andrzejewski of uh, Open the Books, um, I think, is is one of the real heroes of the transparency in government movement that um, has people, frankly, on both the left and the right, myself included, um, who have been working together for low these many years to make the federal government more transparent so that people, voters, citizens can know what their elected officials and their unelected officials are actually doing. Um, Adam has put on his website, openthebooks.org, the entire checkbooks for all 50 state governments and uh, makes it possible uh, for anybody who comes onto their website to to determine pretty much with great accuracy and comprehensiveness what the federal government is spending uh, on tax dollars on. So he's he's one of my right. heroes. Oh yeah, Mark. And I, I've known him as yes, long Curtis. as I've known you. And I tell people just to go openthebooks.org. Go ahead, Curtis. Yes. All right. Um, what are your thoughts on this uh, Fannie Willis and? Uh, Nathan Wade situation. Um, is it going anywhere? Um, will Trump benefit from it, or it doesn't make any difference? Well, you know, irregardless, yeah, irregardless of, of what it does or doesn't do for Trump, the fact that you have um, this kind of a situation, and, you know, I mean, it's an obvious, profound, serious conflict of interest. And probably a, I would think, I mean, I'm not familiar with Georgia law, but I would think that um, you could make a case that at least some of the expenditures that are involved in this represent a criminal misuse of of government funds. So I I think it's pretty serious, and I don't see how Georgia authorities can't, I don't see how they could could possibly avoid uh, pursuing this and prosecuting it to the fullest extent. Well, a lot is coming out, and a lot of people are looking at the money, $650,000, almost well over half a million dollars went to this guy. And and, and probably more. Absolutely outrageous. Yeah. Right. Listen, Andy, that's going to happen, Curtis. That is going to have to be my last question for today, but we will be doing this again, I hope. Oh, yeah. Yes, in two weeks. Two weeks. I got your schedule. Curtis, I'm how do you, you ever keep? Curtis, how do you ever keep up with Annie? I I can't. How can you? <laughs> hey, it's it's not easy. It's not easy. Yeah. Especially since well, she has a, a, a new man in her life. Ah, okay. Well, that's listen, it, guys, I'll it. talk to you next time. Okay. All right. Thank you very much. Check out Mark Tapscott. He's at the Epoch Times. Uh, there's a link on the show page. You can click on that and see that he is. He, what, what was that award he got? Let me just pull all this up again. That um, he received the National Freedom of Information Act Hall of Fame award, and he was also right. no, named the Journalist of the Year by CPAC. So Mark knows his stuff. And if I, I'm running circles around it, like, but hey, that's a compliment. <laughs> I just wish I was happy to see it. He's right smack in the heart of things. Um, he's got an article in there that he put up about uh, two days ago 
uh, talking about Mayorkas's impeachment articles. It looks like that's going forward. There were some rumblings I saw last night that they were going to pull them, uh, and it looks like instead they're going to set to mark them up. And uh, I double-checked today, and as of uh, in November, 201 Democrats voted to refer articles of impeachment against the secretary. 201 Democrats said to refer articles. So I think um, he just pushed a little bit too far. So the hearing is scheduled, the markup schedule is scheduled for January 30th at 10 a.m. So that's something we'll be we'll be taking a look at. That's in just four days. Uh, 10 a.m., the House is going to look at marking up the articles of impeachment for Mayorkas. And it's about time someone holds this administration's feet to the fire. And someone posted in one of the chat rooms that the Biden administration has been following the Trump uh, immigration policy. I am sorry to say that they are badly misinformed because on day one, hour one, Joe Biden sat down in the Oval Office and signed an executive order to halt the building of the border wall. He then further went on to change immigrant immigration policies and removing enforcement uh, duties from customs and making them now be babysitters to put them on buses and send them into the interior of our nation. I mean, uh, people that were issued summonses under Trump to appear before court, you're talking about weeks or maybe a couple of months down the road. We are now hearing that these summonses to appear before court, these illegal immigrants, are as much as six to ten years down the road. The Biden administration did anything and everything in their power to ignore immigration law and to reverse all the policies that Trump put in place. And if he thinks I'm wrong, I'll be happy to sit down in front of him face-to-face and debate him with facts in hand. Well, one of the things I, I want to touch with, um, Mark, was this um, recent Supreme Court ruling um, down in, um, what is it, Texas, where they had to remove the barbed wire. The razor wire? Yes. Razor wire. Yes. And, no. um, you know, that we can always count on... Chief Justice Roberts to um, screw things up for <laughs> the Constitution. I, I just don't get this guy. Now, I, I don't have the actual articles in front of me because I caught that just as I was getting ready to do the Zoom call with the South Carolina Freedom, Freedom Caucus. But it is within the Constitution that the states do have the right to defend themselves from Their invasion. Borders, yeah. And yeah. under the and, um, of invading, of the invasion, the mass number of people that are coming across illegally without authorization is deemed under the definition at the time that article was written as an invasion. So Governor Abbott is completely correct in re-erecting that razor wire. He is doing what the Constitution allows him to do to protect his state from an invasion. Well, you said this, this isn't over, and you could have a situation um, almost like what happened in Dallas when uh, Kennedy was assassinated. Um, you know, any homicide, um, the city or county that happened in has jurisdiction over it. Well, of course, the Secret Service wants to take his body back to Washington, D.C., and for a moment there in the hospital, Parkland Hospital, they were like, it was like a standoff between local um, officials at the police and um, the Secret Service. 
And it could happen again in Texas. Golly, that's Texas again. It could happen with Texas, um, with um, the, the the Texas um, National Guard standing up against our, our federal, you know, our military, you know, the Biden administration um, force. It's weird, you know, what this country come to. Right. Now, I'm trying to see if I can pull up an article um, and seeing if I can find that section of the Constitution that Abbott was quoting and he's using. So just bear with me, folks. Uh, it is known well, as the Invasion Clause that I am in, uh, that I am corrected. And, of course, my computer, uh, here we go, invoke the Invasion Clause. Come on. Let's click on this. Oh, there we go. Okay, and, uh, and of course, they're not citing the actual actual part of it. Oh, and here it is. It's Article 4. Shit, my computer's acting up. Article 4, Section 4. Uh, it's mentioned twice. Article 1, Section 10, and Article 4, Section 4. That gives Abbott the same uh, right to... to um, Basically, states no state shall, without the consent of Congress, lay any duty of tonnage. Okay, that deals with that. Um, un- unless actually invaded or in such imminent danger as will not admit of delay. So basically, they're saying, yeah, you need Congress to do certain acts, but if your state is in danger of an invasion, as defined by the founding fathers in the Federalist Papers and multiple times defined by the Founding Fathers in the Federalist Papers, this is an invasion. And the people of that state are in imminent danger for their very lives and livelihood because we know the fentanyl, we know of the sex trafficking, we know of the homicides that have occurred with this invasion. So Abbott is 100% correct in invoking these two sections of the Constitution to, to protect the border. Get the feeling I'm pissed? Oh, yeah. But um, even though they may remove the razor wires, I'm sure he has something else on his sleeves he can do to um, um, secure his borders down there. Mm-hmm. And, and, of course, he'll be challenged again by the left wing, whatever he does. But, you know, like you said, it's, it's, it's written all that he has the right to defend this state's border, and um, they can they can take that back up to, to the Supreme Court if they want to. But that's what we we have to do. You know, we have to work through the court system like the left has done over the decades. That's how they won so many um, cases, and, um, and you know had a way to enforce their policies because they went to the court system. I think we're just catching up and learning how to do that, which is a good thing. Right. Right. Absolutely. Um, we have in about a couple of minutes uh, need you to call in our next guest, uh, Morgan Lorette, who's got an interesting book out there uh, that we're going to be interviewing him on. And matter of fact, uh, the name of the book is Gun, Girls, and Greed. I was a Blackwater mercenary in Iraq, set for release on February 6th on Amazon. So that's going to be a very, very interesting uh, interview. Uh, and he's got a very interesting background. Um, so, yes, it's it, going to be a lot of fun and um it looks like well, maybe more like he called in. himself 
Yeah. Oh, yes, it definitely does. Ahead of time, he's excited and happy to be on the show here today. So let's welcome Morgan Lorette, again, author of Guns, Girls, and Greed. I was a Blackwater mercenary in Iraq being released on Amazon on February 6th, and I've read it cover to cover, Morgan, so you're in trouble. <laughs> good afternoon. Uh-oh. Well, <laughs> hopefully it's good trouble. I don't know. <laughs> That's right. I just got a pissed off contest with someone inside one of the chat rooms up on uh, YouTube, and uh, it's got my little giddy ire up in the air. <laughs> <laughs> Don't mess with the New York City cops. <laughs> You're always going to get the wrong end of it. <laughs> anyway, it's a very fascinating book, and um, I, as, I, as I was opening it up and reading it, uh, I had a laugh because the second I read the, the the introduction page, you dedicated it to Shelly, Shelly, I'm sorry, Teeth in Backwards Day, for Shelby Bell. You were no help editing this. I had a crack up because I said, the moment I read that, I know you're going to have one of the biggest off-the-wall sense of humor ever. You've got to explain that one. Yes. Well, I credit Shelby with saving my life when I got back from Blackwater, and she was my dog. She was amazing. So. Mm-hmm. I, I dedicated it to her, and she was absolutely no help in editing. She if, Every time I'd ask her how my grammar was, she would just roll over and lick her butt. So in other words, she was telling you you were for sure. <laughs> <laughs> you know? <laughs> but you, you write this book. You know, it's it's we've had 9-11. You go into the Air Force, 2003. You're sent to Iraq. And then in 2004 – you decide to become a contractor through Blackwater. Um, but as I'm reading the book, I'm saying 2004, why do I remember that year so well? And then you mention in your book the four Blackwater contractors that were murdered in Iraq. And I said, oh, crap. Oh, is that why you went in, or did that occur while you were just going through training? No, that occurred before I got over to Blackwater. And like you, I had no idea what Blackwater was or that they were doing anything until the incident in Fallujah where they got hung from the bridge. And that was one of the things where I was like, I definitely don't want to go work for Blackwater. But I had a buddy that was like, Morgan, we could both go to Wall Street. We could make like millions of dollars. And then when we're old and we're sitting on our front porch, we're only going to have stories like, oh, I got the short sell on this stock. And he's like, let's go work for Blackwater, get some cool stories. And I was like, yeah, that sounds insane. But then he got to Blackwater and gave him my number. They called me. And I was like, this sounds like a good time. Why the heck not? It was good money. But for those that don't remember this, on March 31st of 2004 in Fallujah, Scott Helbison, Jerry Zvok, I'm, I'm going to mispronounce his name, Zipko, Wesley Batonle, yep. and Mike Teague were all killed and dragged from their vehicles. The bodies were beaten and burned, and then they were hung from the bridge, which led to the first Battle of Fallujah that we gave up on, and then later on, seven months later, the second Battle of Fallujah that we won, only to give Iraq back to well, the insurgents. Does it, I mean, how does it feel that knowing all this went on and we're back down to square one? I mean, it, it feels like garbage, to be honest with you, but it does illustrate kind of how private military contractors have permeated into this military-industrial complex, and they end up 
affecting combat operations, right? We probably wouldn't have went into Fallujah if those guys weren't hanged from the bridge. And then we went through the process of, like, trying to negotiate with Fallujah, and then we had to go back again in, I think it was October 2004, to actually take the entire country. So you go, like, I went over there in 03, happy to help. You know, I thought everybody was going to be – you know, reaching out and opening opening their arms up to us and hugging us. And they were for the most part. But then 04 happens. We had the elections. You had an interim government. And everybody still kind of feels pretty good about themselves. And then 05 hits, and it's like sectarian violence where the Shias had been ruled so violently by the Sunnis and Saddam Hussein for so many decades that they were going to get their retribution. And that's the frustrating part is that I don't think we could have done anything except let them fight it out, but we kept sticking our nose in the middle of it trying to assist when we probably should have just got out a heck of a lot earlier, let them figure it out, and then they would be in the exact same spot they are now. Well, you know, the one thing is, as Americans, we don't understand tribal mentality. We don't understand the Oriental mind in China. We don't understand the Russian long-haul game. We think short-term. If we can't do it in 24 characters or less, we don't have much interest in it. We don't think long-term like they do, and they don't, we don't have the tribal history or the dynasty history that these other countries do. And yet every single time and time and time again, we end up in, in the middle of this stuff. Yeah, with no idea what we should be doing in the middle of it. I mean, I didn't know anything about the Sunnis and the Shias and the Kurds when I got there. Um, And even if you look at the naming conventions, the Arabic naming conventions, it was Saddam Hussein al-Takriti. So he was a a Takriti, and then he was a Sunni, and then he was an Iraqi. And we kind of look at it differently, right? We're all Americans, and then we kind of start splitting ourselves off into political parties or, you know, heritage, some of that stuff, but it is literally in their name, their tribe. And then the next thing is, is going to be their sect, and they will fight to the death over it. And it goes all the way back to when Muhammad died, and they wanted to argue whether the next leader of uh, Islam was going to be a descendant of Muhammad or if it could be anybody. And that's where the two split, and they've never seen eye to eye since. No, no. And they have the saying, enemy of my enemy is my friend. Um, even though they, you are their enemy, if you're the enemy of the same person, now you become a friend until that's done and now you fight back again. And that's something we, we fail to understand. Uh, we've seen it in Somalia. We've seen it time and time and time again. And yet we can't get our government to quite understand that. And here you guys are on the ground smack in the middle of it, and it's like being the ping pong ball. And all you're doing is just going back and forth, back and forth from one side to the other. What do you do? How do you behave? Well, and that's, that's the legal gray area for private military contractors is you're in Iraq. You're outside of, you know, the base. So you're, you're in Iraqi sovereign soil. Do the laws of Iraq apply to you? Do the laws of the United States, do the laws of the Uniform Code of Military Justice, the military justice system, and the truth is, is that no politician has ever defined it well enough, and I think that's on purpose. There's no reason for them to really try to define it, because if they did, they wouldn't be able to use private military contractors to the scale that they're still using them today. I mean, the heyday is kind of over, but they're using them at the border to move families and unaccompanied minors. They're in the Ukraine. 
They're in Syria. They're in Israel. I mean, they're everywhere. It, it hasn't slowed down. It's, it's quite literally the billion-dollar question is who regulates these PMCs and these billion-dollar contracts? You just said it that billion-dollar question and billion-dollar contract. You follow the Benjamins, and then you see where they are. And as you mentioned in the border security, you got the NGOs, the non-government agencies, uh, that are getting thousands upon thousands of dollars per body they process here into the United States. And how many millions are now here in the United States, and how many billions of dollars have we spent on these NGOs to move them? And it's the same thing now with the you government contractors. I mean, you're getting great money. You're working for a private company, so you're not under the military rules of engagement. And it's what the company says you do. And the least little hiccup could get you put to the back or fired, but they don't care. They just bring the next body back up again, and it fills your shoes. And it's billions of, billions of dollars that taxpayers are unaware of are being flown out there. It, it's it's crazy. So, and I talk about this in the book is that at some point I realized that I was I kind of had to be out for myself. So, as a contractor, we had contractors get fired for almost everything. If somebody didn't like the way they were doing something, the State Department said, "Get rid of that guy." Really easy to get rid of that guy, right? He's not part of the Department of State. He's not really a Blackwater employee because we were all subcontractors. So it was really being expendable. And I liken it to like a Starbucks coffee cup. And you, you drink what you want out of it, and if there's a little left, you throw it away, or you finish it, you throw it away. And that's what PMCs are. They, they keep an arm's distance or two arm's distance from the federal government and what they're sanctioning, but it allows them enough room to say, oh, something bad happened. It was that bad apple over there that works for that PMC. It wasn't us. New York is not up there saying, oh, yeah, we're bringing in unaccompanied minors. And let's say, God forbid, one of them gets sold into, like, a trafficking scheme. New York is not going to say, oh, yeah, that was the contract that we signed. He's going to say, oh, it was that private military contractor that didn't do the chain of custody correctly that made this happen. That is disheartening. It is. It is very disheartening. And here you had prior military experience. So you're like, all right, fine. I'll military experience going with the military contractor. You thought you knew what the the ground rules were. Um, but you have like a you have a, like a little off the wall sense of humor. Uh, so you are someone that already bucked the system, uh, which I guess gave you a little bit of a heads up, a little bit more um, of an ability to end up in the end, protect yourself. Yeah, yeah. Well, and the people that I worked with, all former Special Forces guys, way cooler than I was. I, I stood on the shoulders of giants over there. Um, they're pretty cynical guys, and they would say, oh, don't, don't listen to those government guys. Those guys are the enemy. And I'd be like, oh, whatever. But then after a while, you're like, oh, yeah, no, they will just kind of toss you under the bus as soon as, as, soon as they get the chance. So it, I woke up pretty quick, and, and now that uh, that sense of humor is, is stuck with me for the rest of my life, and my wife is not happy <laughs> about it, but most people enjoy reading the book because it's got a lot of fun stuff in it. Yeah, well, you also talk with the toll that it takes on the men and their families back home, and uh, rather cynical, uh, but you also talk about the times that you did go back home to visit and how you felt so out of place, and this is the discussion I had um on a previous podcast I do on, on Wednesdays, uh, how angry I am 
that the military men and women are being ignored here in this nation. Uh, but you as contractors, you have no anger. In today's day and age, we have the disabled vets, uh, the BAV, we've got the AMVETS. There are services if the, the military veterans are willing to reach out. But for you guys, there was nothing. There is only just recently, I think in the last two years, has there been legislation coming forward to give you guys a hand. Yeah, it's it's extremely frustrating. So as a as a military member, because I deployed over there a couple times as a military member, you come back, you're with the same people that you were with over there. You can kind of commiserate, um, and there's there's like a, a decompression time with that. And then mm-hmm. as a private military contractor, you come back and it's just you and it's your thoughts, and those thoughts are not great uh, when you first come back. So. It got to a point, and I kind of get through it in the book, where it, it felt like I was more at home over in Iraq than when I came home because the people that I was hanging out with, um, like friends, family, they didn't really understand what we were doing, and you couldn't explain it without them looking at you being like, oh, my gosh, this guy's crazy. He's, uh, he's come back a totally different person. So the suicide rate for PMCs is exponentially higher than for, for soldiers, sailors, you know, U.S. military people, because it's just you. And, yeah, you could text your friend, but most of your buddies are still over in Iraq. And your friend is not in, like, you know, two doors down. He's, he's in Tennessee. You're in Florida. And it, it just gets to a point even now where private military contractors still can't figure out how to assimilate. Now, let's throw the VA on top of that. The VA is not the greatest institution on the planet. I'm not going to sit here and and sing its praises, but at least it's something. With contractors, Mm -hmm. there was absolutely nothing. Like, you have a problem, well, yeah, you can go see a doctor, but you don't have insurance because you're a private military contractor. You You don't have any of that stuff when you get home. The second you leave the ground in Iraq, all of those like benefits that you would be able to get while you were in Iraq are absolutely gone, along with your paycheck. So the smart thing to do, which is what I did, is to come and blow all your money as fast as you possibly can and then go back on another contract. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, of course, a lot of you guys, your marriages. Uh, but then again, some, a lot of times the women were just there for the money that you were bringing home and not there for you. Uh, you write about that in the book, too, where it takes a toll on both ends. Oh, absolutely. And, and I mean, this is something that soldiers deal with all the time. Um, but private military contractors are, are the same thing. And I, I try to kind of hit on that in the book is that all that PTSD, all that stress, all the things that you hear about with soldiers, private military contractors are going through that same thing. And people say, why would I feel bad for them? They went over there to chase the money. I'm not asking you to feel bad. I'm just asking you to, like, scratch underneath the surface to say, are PMCs, the way they're being used, a net benefit for combat zones, or are they not? And when I was 23, totally a benefit because I was getting paid by them. Uh, Now that I'm a little bit older, I look at it and I think, oh, my gosh, if my kid said he was going to go work for a PMC, I would would shake him. I would just shake him until he got that out of his head. (laughs) Well, one of the things I kind of laughed at, uh, you took a little bit of a vacation. You went to Amsterdam. And now i got to say, I was in Amsterdam before you were gleam in your mommy's eye, <laughs> truthfully. But when you wrote describing a certain street you were walking down, I'm going, oh, yeah, I know that street. Because quite honestly, I was walking with uh, two other women, 
And you can tell uh, by my dialect, I'm a native New Yorker. I'm living in the South because I chose to. I got here as soon as I could. Um, but as we were trying to find a place we were trying to go to, the person deliberately sent us down Hooker Alley. <laughs> and there's no other way to call it, but Hooker Alley. And as we're going down, um, you didn't mention the books, the grandmas that sat in the rocking chairs with the buckets of piss at their feet. So if you made a rude comment or anything like that, or they said they did the wrong thing, it's going to get tossed on you. Uh, so here are these three <laughs> American females walking down the street, and we finally get to the far end, and there is a, the, the police officer with two Great Danes on these leashes, and the collars literally had spikes on them. And he's laughing at us. It's like, all right, just show us how to get back to the hotel. <laughs> so I know you walk down <laughs> in Amsterdam. And all I kept on saying is, as a typical New Yorker, ladies, keep your head straight. Don't turn. Don't look. Don't say anything. Ladies, just follow me. We're going straight. There's got to be at the end of the street. There's got to be someone. It's got to be that way. <laughs> I got us out of there. Well, so I was us, laughing when I was reading that. Yeah, they give you a map at the hotel, and they say, oh, these are all the places you can go. But it's like that tourist map where the building is, like, huge, and then the streets around it are really tiny. And what you think is a street is really just an alleyway. And the next thing you know, mm-hmm. you, I was so lost in Amsterdam trying to find our way back to the alley after we had been, um, after we had been accosted by a, a couple of locals. And that was, <laughs> that, was a, that was quite the experience. I mean, Amsterdam – has the Rembrandt Museum, and that is absolutely spectacular. I'm glad that I got to go check that out because I didn't know what fine art was until I went in there. I was like, holy cow, that pear looks like a pear. Uh, but on the other side of it, you had the Sex Museum, and I was like, oh, geez, this is quite the juxtaposition between these two uh, things in the same general area. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> where you can go down there and smoke pot, and it's everyone does it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> hey. Hey Morgan. Hey Morgan. Yes, sir. This, this is my is co-host. The, uh, co-host. I, I was listening to um, the benefit issues or the lack of benefits you have when you come back, and I'm not a proponent really of unions. They have their place, though. Have you guys ever considered unionizing? I mean, we were all independent contractors, so right. I guess in theory we probably could, could have gone through and try to unionize, but none of us, I think, were smart enough at the time to even think that that was a possibility. So, I, and, and then, I mean, we could talk about unions because I, I agree they have their place, but Blackwater ended up dissolving anyway. So any kind of benefit that would have come from that, I think you change your name four or five times and it'd be hard for anybody to do it. Here's the one thing I will say. There is something called the Defense Base Act. And if any of your listeners were private contractors, whether it's like the Blackwater type or the KBR that was, you know, fixing vehicles, reach out to me. I'm happy to, to put you out. But there were insurance policies on us and they covered injury and death. Now, nobody knew about this, but all of a sudden, I would say like three years ago, by word of mouth, they started doing these Defense Base Act claims through the Department of Labor, and former contractors can get either medical benefits or they can get a payout, and at least there's something with that. Um, There's also 
a Facebook page for the Florida Blackwater guys. If you really want to go on there and, you know, be grumpy at everybody, it's the place for you. <laughs> well, I put up I put up your link to Twitter on there. I couldn't put all the links that you have there, but there is a link to the book uh, up on Amazon. And, you know, um, I'm reading through the book, and I'm listening to all the stuff that you've gone through. And, you know, when we drive here in the United States, you've got certain rules of the road, blah, blah, blah. But here you are as a contractor, and you're trying to protect your principal, or you're trying to protect, like you were talking about pallets of money being moved. Um, you were trying to do whatever you were hired to protect, whether it's an individual or something else applies. And you're now dealing with the way people drive down there. And what was heartbreaking in the book was when I read the part where you talked about seeing two dolls fly out of the car and what happened after that, how the gentleman that was driving the car tried to turn it into something completely different. But this is something that we as Americans don't think could possibly happen. And here, as you as contractors are now being put under the scrutiny, like, oh, my God, you killed the wife, you shot her. But how everything could just on a dime turn. And here you are driving through traffic and just in an instant, everything can go wrong. Yeah, no, I mean, that was definitely the craziest thing. Uh, I remember when I was in high school, I wasn't a big video game player, but they said, these video games are really ruining our children about violence. And when you see violence in real life, I don't care how many video games you played, it is like a shock to the system. So what you're talking about is when there was a car accident, it looked like something right out of a movie. Car starts flipping, kids start flying out of it, the driver died. Um, And we did everything in our power to be able to help them with the resources that we had. And I think that that's something that private contractors don't get any credit for. If you were in the military and something like that happened, everybody would get a medal, you know, you'd probably make the news contractors. I don't think you could find anything about those kids or that family um, anywhere in the world because it, well, it was just contracting. There was no news agency. There's no like way to, to, go and say these contractors did the right thing at the right time. Um, so it's, it's, it's a, one of those jobs where you're not going to get any credit for what you do. And, I mean, the big one that was in the Joff where Blackwater started dropping ammo on top of uh, the roof, and there was an injured Marine, and they flew him off. So every once in a while you'll see this little, this little part where um, PMCs help. But day-to-day on the ground, contractors were doing stuff like that um, as part of their regular, you know, daily protecting the diplomat and going from point A to point B and, you know, making sure that the cars barreling up on you weren't IEDs. Like, it was just, it was the craziest time. Somebody had to write about it from the ground perspective. That was me. Right. <laughs> well, me and, well, well, I me did and have Shelby. Enough. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> Well, I, I did have a previous private contractor on with another book out, but not not as graphic or as humorous as yours. Uh, he he glossed over all that background stuff that you give, which, which is much more interesting because you give the actual day to day of what you guys are doing and how you actually tried to dehumanize those you were facing by giving them nicknames. If you do that, then you don't have to recognize them as you know pure humanity. But you also did it with your fellow buddies, guys you didn't like. You gave these oddball nicknames to, and guys you like, that's the better one. Um, but it, it takes a human toll, and you talk about that a lot in the book. 
Uh, but you also talk about stolen valor. And there was this one guy that Blackwater, for whatever reason, did not vet properly. And I'm sure he's not the only one, but he was the most notable case. And you write about Matt Marshall. Tell us about him. Oh, Matt Marshall. You know what? When I worked with Matt, he was a pretty good guy. And that's the last I ever even thought about it. I tried to reach out to him a couple times, maybe emailed him, you know, within a few years. But then he went off and was doing all these awesome things. I heard he's like protecting the, the crown prince of whatever country. And then uh, he started up Amantar or Amantor up in Whitefish, Montana with his billionaire. And then the next thing I know, I'm getting a call from the FBI that's saying, hey, do you, do you know who's in these pictures with Matt Marshall? And I was like, yeah, yeah, I know that guy. He looks a lot like me. Um, that I remember when that picture was taken. So the FBI started investigating him because Matt was telling everybody that he was a super-duper secret spy for the CIA. And he had this guy funding him under the table to go do these super-secret missions where they were, like, rescuing kidnapped victims. And they were, um, like, doing, you know, like, bump and run overseas for terrorists and it turns out that he was just lying about the whole thing and taking that money and spending it lavishly on watches and vacations uh so he ended up getting six years in prison and my my biggest problem with it almost the guy's so smart that he was able to get away with it for that long the biggest problem with it is that he used his time at blackwater to get to that next job to get to that next job to get to that next job to where he is doing six years in federal prison for fraud, money wire, uh, money wire fraud, all that stuff. And if Blackwater had taken the time to get his DD-214 to see that he did not serve in the Marine Corps recon, maybe they would have said, hey, we're not going to deal with this guy. But they didn't. And the vetting process, when you expand as fast as Blackwater did, I'm sure that there's a number of them that slipped right through the cracks. And I'm not the cool guy right out there for security forces, but at least I was honest about what I did and where I went. Like, holy cow, some of mm-hmm. these guys had the craziest stories on the planet. And you'd look at them and say, I don't think that's true. And then it turns out, you know, four or five years later, it wasn't true. They were just kind of, they were just kind of blowing smoke and nobody could really call them out on it. You know, it- it, it is always amazing, and I've, I've known people very similar to that where they, they come in and they'll claim X, Y, Z, and you kind of like look at them a little sideways. And it's like, yeah, well, why are you down here with us peons? And when you do a little background, it's like, well, something's hinky in the background. But he was so good that you didn't even have an, an inkling that he was not who he said he was. No, I mean, he was he was good. I introduced him to other recon Marines, force recon Marines, and he buffaloed those guys, too. I mean, it was he was amazing at his craft. I'll give him credit there. But, yeah, he, he definitely – I mean, to go as far as to get a tattoo, a recon, force reconnaissance tattoo on your body when you never actually were in that career field, that's commitment. Absolutely, absolutely. Now, you got out. You went back to civilian life. It wasn't easy for you at all. Uh, you talk about having to go back to college, and um, <laughs> I kind of like know what you feel because when I went to college, um, I went back after a number of years later, and I'm looking around, and I'm looking at these kids that barely can wipe their own butts, and they're trying to tell you what to think and do. 
and you were talking about having to do this assignment with this one female, and she's looking at you like you got 14 different eyeballs on your head. They don't understand the reality of the world out there where you've been right smack in the heart of it. So what do you say to people like that? How do you deal with them? Well, first, I, I started a butt wiping business when I was in college, and I made a lot of money with that. So, so that helped. But, um, you know, the problem is, is that you don't. You don't actually deal with people like that. And, and that's the real shame is that a lot of the times I would have something, I could bring up something, and people would either discard it. And it just gets to a point where you just don't want to bring stuff up. You're just going to do the assignments. And the whole thought process behind college, especially at like the graduate level, is that you learn from the other people in your class. And I think that with the military members, as they come in and they're older, some of them will get, you know, really loud and verbose. And then people say, oh, he's just, you know, that person's just a vet. And that's who they are. And then the other part just, you know, says nothing. And they do their classwork and they get out and they hopefully get a good job and they enjoy it. But it's not a lot of people that actually are able to tell their story um, the way that I have with actually being able to write a book. So it's it's difficult. It's absolutely difficult when you're like 27 years old and you're sitting next to an 18-year-old conjugating verbs in Spanish uh, to to have a connection (laughs) with them. Well, you know, you, you went back into the military. You went back into the Army this time, and you came out as a captain. How was it the second time you went in? And I'm looking at my clock, and, oh, my God, we've got like four and a half minutes left. <laughs> the whole thing was just like too damn fast. Uh, yeah, happy to come back and talk again. But when I went back in the Army, I, I, had, I felt like I had made the biggest mistake ever because you go from Blackwater where it's a very lean – do the right thing at the right time, big boy rules, to the Army where they say, hey, we're going to have formation at 7, and somebody says, then be here at 6.30, be here at 5.30. Next thing you know, it's 2 in the morning, and you're standing there, and nothing's going to happen for, like, the next five hours. So it was extremely frustrating. (laughs) But professionally, it was great for me to get into that, that leadership role and be able to, like, go back overseas And as an Army officer, the PMCs would, like, randomly drive in the base, and I'd think, man, I wish they would have told us what was going on. And then I was like, oh, yeah, I used to be that guy. So I can't get too frustrated. (laughs) But if if my children ever wanted to go in the military, uh, definitely going to go the officer route because you get treated quite a bit better, um, pays pays quite a bit better, and you get that, that leadership experience that you can take back into, like, a graduate degree or into the workplace, uh, and it translates really, really well. So, I mean, there's a thousand things I could say about it that aren't good. I did not like my time in the Army, but it was good for me. I, I took my medicine. I ate the frog, you know. Uh, uh, but, but you had one good thing. You found your future wife. I did. I found my future wife, and that's kind of the good, the good news at the end of the book is I found my future wife. We got a couple of beautiful kids. Uh, we both spent time in the Army. She went to Afghanistan, came back, and then six weeks later I went to Iraq. So we both just kind of looked at each other and said, we got we to gotta get out. Uh, there's no way we're going to be able yeah. to just keep going back and forth overseas. So it, it worked out. You know, I married way over my head. Let's be honest here. Like she, <laughs> uh, she's the reason why I'm I gotta, not like, you know, outside eating dirt with a spoon. <laughs> well, I, I keep on telling my current husband, because this is number three, and I got married just a little over a month ago. <laughs> Honey, this is it for the rest of your life. You're married over your, your, your pay grade. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> more, 
It has been a pleasure. Uh, definitely, we definitely have to get you to come back on because there's a lot more things we have to talk about. Your book is coming out February 6th. It is up on Amazon, and they can find it under your name, Morgan Lorette. I was a Blackwater mercenary. Um, oh, make sure I get this right. Guns, Girls, and Greed. I was a Blackwater mercenary in Iraq. Well, God bless. I'm glad that you're home safe and sound, and you had this to write. Well, thank you so much for having me on. And I know it's $30, and I bought books that were $30, and I only read four chapters. This is not that book. This is the book that you're actually going to read. I had a guy tell me he hadn't read a book since high school, and he read this thing cover to cover in like a day and a half. So it's, it's a wild ride. It is. It's a fun ride, a wild ride. And it's also on Kindle that people can get downloads for fourteen ninety nine on Amazon also. But that's all we got here for today, Morgan, and I want to thank you. And Curtis, we'll be back next week. Uh, we've got people next coming week. back up from Heritage Foundation. Heritage Foundation. And they're giving me the heads up. 90 seconds left. So I'll leave everyone with our song from Gary Pecorella, Save America. And I say good night and God bless. Same bad time, same bad station next Friday. All right. Humphrey.